1: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit... KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Murray.
0: Good evening. Well, I am so thrilled today because we have a fabulous guest coming to us from the East Coast, Nula O'Connor Kelly. I have admired her from afar for a long time. She's done fabulous things, and when you hear her, you're going to be excited too. Let me tell you a little bit about her background. Nula was named Senior Consul Information Governance and Privacy in 2008 for General Electric, and she joined GE as Chief Privacy Leader in 2005. In her current role, Nula co-leads GE's Information Governance Council, which is responsible for the development and implementation of the company's policies and practices across the whole data life cycle. When we talk about data lifecycle, we mean the creation of the data, protection, and disposal of it. NULA also facilitates the team of business privacy leaders and the information governance and privacy practice groups. She has an incredible background. Prior to joining GE, NULA served as chief privacy officer of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And before joining DHS, Nula served as Chief Privacy Officer for the US Department of Commerce, where she also served as Chief Counsel for Technology and as a Deputy Director of the Office of Policy and Strategic Planning. Prior to public service, Nula served as Vice President of Data Protection and Chief Privacy Officer for Emerging Technologies for the online company DoubleClick, and she's also served as the company's first Deputy General, Counsel for Privacy. She has practiced law with the firms of Sidley and Austin, Hudson Cook, and Venable in Washington, D.C. And she's a member of the Board of Directors of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And in fact, besides being a certified information privacy professional, she is the incoming president, which she'll take over in January. She was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, She received her A.B. from Princeton University and a Master's of Education from Harvard and a J.D. from George Washington Law Center. She's terrific, and we're just thrilled that she is joining us. Nula, thanks for joining us all the way from D.C. Mari, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you have such an incredible background. How did you get into privacy anyway? You know, like all the best careers,
2: sort of accidental, but it makes a lot of sense. In hindsight, I should just take credit for it, right? I started out uh, during law school. Actually, I should say even before law school, having finished my master's in education, wanting to work on Capitol Hill during education policy and things around kids, and that morphed into education lending practices and financial practices and bank regulatory and then this thing called the Internet came out, and I was one of the younger attorneys in my firm and sat and played with it on the weekends and helped uh, the partners I worked for help advise their bank clients on online privacy practices and data transfer and technology. And that has morphed into kind of privacy generally and uh, data protection. And it's just been a really kind of wild and lucky, fortuitous ride having – been right there with the technology
0: advances all the way. Wow! Now, are you a techie yourself? Would you consider yourself a techie? Oh, well, I would now, certainly. Although I'm sure the tech guys at work would laugh at that.
2: Um, <laughs> you know, I do know how to turn on my computer, which was the only thing I had going for me over the, you know, many of the other attorneys in my <laughs> firm. But, um, but I love the new technology, and I guess I would call myself an early adopter. I was lucky enough to get one of the first iPhones at the company, and I, uh, as someone said recently, social networking online was definitely made for me. It's both techie and social, um, but I think they're great collaborative tools and, and lessons we can learn in the company about what's going on on the Internet and how people interact and really foster global dialogue and global uh, kind of transmissions in, in a positive way to help enhance productivity at the company but also protect data at the same time.
0: So, what makes you passionate about privacy? You know, it's
2: such a real-world practice. It really affects people's lives, and it's such to me. It's such a profound sense of the individual versus the needs of the larger whole or the needs of institutions. And uh, you know, I like the way the Europeans see it as a human right. It really, you know, strikes me at the heart of the individual in his or her place in society. So, I mean, that's the big picture. The little picture is, you know, this is stuff people understand. They understand fairness and, you know, their credit card companies wanting their data and, you know, their banks wanting their data. And what makes a fair deal in the, in the marketplace, it, it to me really resonates as a practical issue as well as a theoretical one.
0: Yeah, and it and it really closely is allied with liberty as well. You know, just having some level of privacy in our country is part of our democracy.
2: It really, that's so well said, and that's something I said a lot when I was at Homeland, that my experience having been born in Northern Ireland, having seen differences in how uh, terrorism is dealt with in different countries, and and the impact on individual liberty of the innocent as well as the suspected, um, really compelled me to want to work at that department at that time, also as a New Yorker, and having been affected by 9-11 as we all were, Um, it was a great opportunity to bring the skills and the knowledge base I had to bear on an emerging uh, kind of framework and legal framework for
0: the country. Yeah. How was that at Homeland Security? What a a hard time when you're talking about security versus privacy. Can you tell us about that? That uh, That's
2: exactly right. That's the way people um, posited it and a a false dichotomy that I tried to really – breakdown. And I was so lucky to work under Tom Ridge, who is the first secretary and who is not only a great man and a great boss, but also a great protector of individual liberties. And what he said to me was, we're here not only to protect the infrastructure and the people and the places of this United States, but we're here to protect our way of life. And part of our way of life is a strong sense of individual liberty. And so things that impact on that sense of of individual freedom should be looked at with suspicion. And well-intentioned, we need to think about the privacy impact of all of our programs and do they have legitimate means to legitimate ends. And so I had a great supporter that made my job, which was hard, a heck of a lot easier because I had good support. And that's true of any, of any job, right? Any privacy officer it helps to have uh, the CEO or the, the top dog's uh, support of the issue, but a real profound resonance of the issue from a, a really terrific leader. So,
0: so lead, us, lead us through some of those positions. You started out, you know, um, in your privacy career basically at DoubleClick. So can you kind of tell us uh, about that evolution and, and how it all went? Because I think it's fascinating. How
2: the heck did that happen? It's <laughs> a question, right? Um, well, like I said, I was in private practice in Washington and uh, looking to do something a little different. And it's a, a very funny story, and, and I suppose I shouldn't bore your listeners. Oh, no, but it won't
0: be fun. No, my, we love it. We it's love a great it.
2: story because it involves my dad who um, is – like like all of us, the Irish immigrant, and had seen this young man named Kevin O'Connor on the Today Show talking about his new business that was just going public, this great online um, uh, high-tech company that happened to be based in Manhattan called DoubleClick. And my dad had bought stock in DoubleClick, you know, just thinking this is a great young man and great company. And um, he said to me one night I was at work, you know, at midnight or something like that. And I, you know, <laughs> Private practice, yes. Right, you know, exactly, junior associate or mid-level associate at a big law firm. And he said, well, why don't you look at this double-click company? You know, so it's really, I have to credit that job to my dad because I had no idea really what I was getting into. It was just the very beginning of... Um, some of the policy challenges that the company had faced they were very transparent about it with me while i was interviewing and in the first month that i was there the company was uh, i think served with a class action almost every day i went to work that month um, we, we had, jumped guess, in with both feet right did, uh, that no. kind of maybe a little bit foolhardy maybe a little bit courageous i don't know maybe a little of both it was also just very very lucky you know i um I, I had been looking at a bunch of companies and wanted to move home to New York, and this was definitely the wildest leap. I had definitely safer options to have gone with, and I'm so glad I, I went with what was really a stretch. And that's probably been true of almost all of my jobs is, is I've taken the
0: harder road, but uh, it, they've turned out well so far, I guess. Not good. Um, and so, well, let's go back to, to DoubleClick because yes, I, yes, I think my yes. audience may not all know or not remember the big brouhaha with DoubleClick. Why don't you just explain that and, and how you dealt with it?
2: Absolutely delighted to. So
0: DoubleClick at the time was
2: very cutting-edge, um, the offer of a very cutting-edge technology involving cookies, which at the time, and they we're talking, you know, what, 12 years ago now, um, people didn't understand technology, how it worked, and how it was being used to place advertising cookies that would remember prior websites you'd visited or ads that you had seen to try to tailor future marketing efforts to things that interested you, things you'd clicked on, whatever. Um, Again well intentioned but perhaps not well explained to a population that was not as ready or tech uh, aware at that time. What they were doing by our standards today was quite tame compared to what other companies are doing now, but um, the thought that there might be these cookies on your machine that you didn't know about, or the potential to link that with your actual shopping habits, your name or address given to a company to purchase a sweater or a book or something online did raise the specter of the melding of your on and offline personality.
0: Right, profiling. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the good news is DoubleClick had always intended to provide adequate notice and you know, robust disclosures and at the time of that collection, but cookies are so, as you well know, transient and kind of trans- not transparent to the end user um, that before that plan to marry the data with offline data, the purchasing data ever was executed. A number of class actions were filed. An FTC complaint was filed. I think we had 12 or 16 attorney general investigations. So from a legal standpoint, it was absolutely fascinating. I'll tell you, I'm sure from
0: a business standpoint. Fascinating, and you were saying no.
2: to your dad, why did you get me into this? <laughs> I really didn't see the house that I was living in at the time for <laughs> most of those 12 or 18 months. I'll tell you, I, I got to know the um, flight attendants on this the the flight out of Newark to California really, really well. We were defending a glass action in San Francisco. Um, but what a just an incredible opportunity. I was single, I was living in New York, I, you know, had all the time in the world to devote to it. So, you know, part of it again was really good luck, accidental and, and of, you know, many people's making. But we had a terrific legal team inside and out. Um, and really again, I said, well intentioned and responsible executives who wanted to learn, who wanted to understand. The policy issues, and I spent ended up spending a lot of time back in Washington. Funny enough, where I just moved from, um, engaging in you know policy making with the FTC and members of Congress. I mean, staff of Congress uh, who were looking at this issue. And amazingly enough, these bills are still being debated and floated around on behavioral profiling and advertising and and that sort of thing. So, what an exciting time! I I you know can say nothing but good things about my experience, and I got to meet tremendous. People in the advocacy community who are still my friends today, um, who I think were hopefully heartened by the work that we did in putting together good policies, and because DoubleClick serviced thousands of internet websites, we were able to impact the creation of policy and, and privacy policies online at all of our clients, and really
0: put a, a terrific cl- compliance program together for the company. So you turned adversity into opportunity. It was a great time. It was. It was a good. I can't. I, I don't look back with any regrets. Even though you, it was you learned crazy. a lot, and luckily, you didn't have any kids at the time. Right. <laughs> Honestly, you never would have seen it. I couldn't do that job today. <laughs> I know. So, then, you know, by meeting all those people and finding out what you had to find out about policy in Washington, that led you then to the Commerce Department. How did that happen? I'm wondering how much of that I should divulge online uh, because part, part of it was personal. I was getting
2: married. I was moving back to Washington. Uh, there were lots of factors that went into that uh, that change. But I had always been very attracted to public policy. And, in fact, I went to law school thinking I would work in public policy and came out with so many hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. I never actually ended up doing that Capitol Hill time that I thought I would. So what a blessing to uh, be approached uh, to do technology policy at the Commerce Department, which, uh, it, like you said, was an outgrowth of the work we've been doing at DoubleClick, and um, spent a couple of years there with, again, a terrific team of people. And again, when the, the, the tragedy of 9 11 happened, just after actually, I actually moved back to Washington and um, the proposals came to fruition for the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, I think. Most people even thought it was an obvious choice that I I really wanted to go because I really wanted to help. So I was extremely lucky to not only spend time at Commerce um, in the Technology Administration, but then to move over to the Department of Homeland Security uh, with the first team. I was there on, I think, day three. We didn't have pencils,
0: you know, right? Really right. I mean, you're always there on the cutting edge, right there. At the bleeding edge, <laughs> <laughs> getting in in, the, in like the hardest time ever, but turning again that that into an opportunity into some really good stuff and good policy making. I am blessed.
2: Um, I was at the time at, at Homeland to have been able to hire a lot of the staff, a lot of the team that still is. Uh, running the Privacy Department today. And I'd say, and with all respect to the other agencies, I think there's there, that team is second to none. We've got people from all different disciplines. And I'll tell you, we stole the model for the Homeland Department really from DoubleQuick's department because we had technologists, we had marketing people, we had lawyers, we had educators, we had people from all different viewpoints, so that the office was really a kind of mini Dialogue, a microcosm of the national debate around the use of personal information. And I always thought, you know, a healthy debate is the best thing we can do for this department to help vet and air these pl- programs and plans internally, to bring in the voice of the individual, the citizen, the consumer, or the advocate, and build those into the programs as they are being rolled out far better than having these things come out, you know, to great fanfare and then fall flat on their face. Um, and I think it's something we, we really did. And we also tried to operationalize it through, and we had help, of course, with the statutory requirements of the E-Government Act and the Privacy uh, Act of 1974 to create privacy impact assessments of every new program, every new data collection, and to really enforce that discipline. Um, was for the first few years an educational experience for all of us. Right, trying to build it
0: into the architecture. Exactly. Many of
2: these programs had never been forced to go through that kind of scrutiny before, just simply asking, why? Why are you doing this? Why do you need this data? Is this really the right data for this program? Does this make sense? Does it match with the statutory and congressional intent of the program? Um, have you gone too far? You know, are, are you reach, overreaching your, your original mandate? And does the public understand? Is this a fair deal you know, to keep them safe on airplanes or in public spaces or wherever? And so, again, I feel very, very fortunate to have been there at that time and to have been able to bring people in from not only other agencies but from outside the government to bring those viewpoints in.
0: Well, you must have the luck of the Irish, my dear. That must be it. <laughs> <laughs> I just want that to. do not talent
2: or hard work; it's all luck.
0: <laughs> oh no, I'm only kidding. I'm kidding. It's you know what it is. You take luck and you take hard work. That's what you blend mm-hmm. together. I'm just giving you a hard mm-hmm. time. My I husband's know. Irish I too, know. so I always tell him he has his green shirt that says "I get lucky." Or I don't <laughs> know. this is so crazy that he likes to wear on St. Patrick's Day, and I give him a hard time. So, we're speaking with Nuala O'Connor Kelly who is Senior Counsel in Information Governance and Privacy for General Electric. And we've been following her career from double-click through government, and now we're going to lead up to when you got to GE. How did that all happen?
2: Well, you know, I had no interest in leaving my great job at Homeland, which I guess is always the best time to be offered a job, right, when you're not looking. Right. Um, And certainly knowing that I was in in an appointed position that had a finite lifetime, my husband certainly also Realizing I could probably be making a lot more money in the private <laughs> sector, encouraged me to at least take an interview or two. Um, and it turned out it was actually similar in, in the realization midstream that I was interested in the job to my experience at Quick, where I went in on kind of a lark and ended up halfway through the interview realizing, oh my gosh, I really want this job. Um, well, the same thing happened uh, with GE, which had, uh, for a number of reasons, made it really clear they wanted someone in Connecticut that I would go, but I, you know, might not end up really wanting it because I didn't want to relocate. We had young, very young children at the time. And, uh, I realized halfway through the day that, oh my gosh, this is just, you know, a dream corporate privacy job because it has everything. We have, I mean, we are a very large bank, so we have financial privacy issues. We have an incredibly dynamic healthcare, uh, practice. So we've got Patient and sensitive personal health care data. Of course, we also have all that data around our employees. We have 300 and I want to say 20,000 employees worldwide. So we've got global privacy flows, we've got employee data relationships. Um we've got kids and online privacy at our NBC Universal group. So I mean, you could do a different job every day and, and never get bored and that is, is what I find. Maybe that's the theme here is that I
0: get bored easily. <laughs> so. No, I think you just love the excitement of all I these do. wonderful opportunities to grow and learn. I mean, right? And, and
2: create. Uh, that's I've, I've said that to other people before. That I, as long as I am learning, I stay. And this is—that's what keeps you so young, Nula. Uh, you too, Mari. <laughs> as you know, as we said, we are a mutual admiration society. So, um, but it is—it's in the learning, and maybe that's why I enjoy this practice so much. Is that it changes all the time? We are in the throes of. You know paradigm shifts about what we're gonna do as a country and legislation and um but anyway the g e job it's terrific it is it it is such an incredible incredible company. I feel lucky to be there um we've got a great team we've got privacy leaders at all these different divisions, so we've got a real matrix you know corporate team um and we're do they were already doing before i got there groundbreaking work on uh, global data protection with their binding corporate rule, which was the first approved in the EU uh, under the new framework that was introduced earlier uh, in about 2002, 2003, 2004. And so you know, they were already aware of this issue and their corporate responsibility around it and had a great program, um, especially around employee records. We've been able to grow it and continue that program. and expanded into supplier and customer and uh, awareness of, of information generally as an asset of the company and as a responsibility. And so it is true. I, I, I'm excited. to get, I'm still excited to get up to go to work, which is terrific.
0: Right, because it's always something new. So, so tell us, what's hot on your plate right now? Uh, that's a great question. Well, we really have rolled
2: out just in the last few months our information governance program and are really expanding our notion of of privacy to not be one that is reactive only to global or, or regional or national law, but one that is really forward-looking where we build privacy and data security principles into all of our programs and really try to educate our employees around the idea that while information is a legitimate asset of the company, it is also something that we need to take great, great care around and um, build systems and structures that reflect those values. So it's, uh, I think, a lot of fun. It's it's very much an education uh, role. I I see a big emphasis, folks at my level, on making sure that the policies are strong, but also that they are communicated well. And to me, again, with my master's in education, that is such an exciting opportunity because, as I said, we have, 320,000 employees. We're in maybe over 150 countries. We have folks who are doing everything from designing jet airplane engines to making light bulbs in factories to, you know, doing all different kinds of jobs in all different kinds of work settings. And so to try to articulate kind of common principles and make them practical for that workforce and make them actionable and understandable in local language you know these are all really kind of
0: mind-boggling challenges. Yeah. I know you wear so many hats <laughs> it's 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 really tough it's thank goodness how many are on your team well it depends on how you count if you count the ones I pay for not very many <laughs> if you count all the people who
2: have privacy in their title or are privacy leaders we have about I want to say 36 or 37 divisions and they all have full or partial full-time privacy leaders. Some of them have teams of dozens and and many, many uh, for the larger divisions, and and some are just one or two. Um, And then we also have a privacy practice group, which is the lawyers who may be corporate or transactional or other full-time lawyers, but who may run across privacy issues in in their uh, daily life, and there are over 200 lawyers on that group. And then our new information governance practice is also almost 100, and that's pretty much half IT and half legal.
0: Wow. So clarify for us what is information governance, at least within your corporation? I should have in front of me our actual definition because
2: we have a definition. Um, And let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head since I helped write it. Um, (laughs) It's the policies and practices around the creation, use, and thoughtful disposition of information assets of the company.
0: It's, it's like re- responsible information practices, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you you, you know, I'm a, I'm a Poneman Institute fellow, and there that's what know. we talk about, responsible information management. Exactly. And so exactly. it sounds a lot like that, which is being ethical and responsible and being the guardian of the information that we collect and use it only for a particular purpose that we tell them about and exactly. be very uh, transparent and all that good stuff. Is that what very it's
2: much, like? Yes, it's very much like, and I'm a big fan of Larry a huge disciple of of, of Larry's. So he's wonderful. He's a, just a terrific human being, and so very much around responsible information management. You hear it called other things, and in information governance, information management, um, lots of different words around. I think the same core concept, which is responsible use of information as an asset of the company. The fun side, though, I mean, th- th- that sounds very heavy and serious, I think, to a lot of people, and like <laughs> compliance and legal. Um, we've also dipped our toe as a team into kind of the more fun or upside of information sharing, and that would be the constructs of online collaborative environments for our employees. And this, again, is an exciting kind of conversation around what our employees want and need and, and should have access to in their work lives. The now younger generation, and I say that never thinking I wouldn't, would not be the younger generation, but the, the younger than me generation as a company is used to things like Facebook and MySpace and online tools and Twitter and things I don't even know the names of yet, right? Right, right. Um, and they're used to that in their, wor- in their personal lives, and more and more we're seeing a desire to collaborate in real time and with great speed in the workplace as well. And so we need to think very, again, pragmatically as well as kind of positively about creating workspaces that make sense to the workforce of the future, and not just in the United States but around the world. We've got engineers in, you know, India talking to engineers in Ohio, um, you know, collaborating on designs and, and projects. We want to make that happen for them, but also obviously protect not only our personal data, but our intellectual property and other uh, internal sensitive information. Um, but we also want to, you know, let people have a little fun at work too. Right, <laughs> right. Get to know right. each other. And when you are always on the phone or an email, you do lose a little bit of that, you know, in-person touch. Um, and so our our great tech team at the Global Research Center, which is really one of our kind of R&D think tanks at the company. Um, developed a product called GE Connect, which is, it's been flippantly called the Facebook for GE, but it's far more than that, although it does have a front page that is reminiscent and and kind of looks and feels like a a social site, but it allows um, very easy access to our internal uh, collaborative spaces like our support central uh, sites and our libraries and folders where people can post information and also provides good strengths around protocols on who can see what data, who can see what folders or libraries, creating teams. I've got the whole privacy practice group on a, a privacy practice group page. We can blog. We can post minute uh, minute meetings. We can uh, share information. And that way I'm also not emailing every day. Well, do you have the minutes from this meeting, or right. what did we decide about this project? And
0: so you have it all up there so you can access those kinds of things to it, m- make it easier for everybody?
2: It's a terrific tool to uh, provide history of projects and um, knowledge management tools so that, that if I ever, you know, get hit by a bus or something, the entire history of privacy policy GE doesn't walk <laughs> off the, the planet with my laptop or something like that. And it, it just much, much better longevity tools for information at the company. So we're very enthusiastic, but obviously we had to grapple with a lot of issues around what kind of personal information people are allowed to post and you know what are the appropriate uses of these tools and these protocols and there's a little education around hey guys things you might post on your facebook page are not necessarily what we want to see you know right, on an internal right. site i
0: mean setting yeah. up all those guidelines it's got to be crazy i think it's fun again because it's real world yeah. and getting a whole team around of all different ages and viewpoints and um, and really so you We're have do's guys. and don'ts, do's and don'ts page. Yeah, you know, and actually, it was one I of mean, our that engineers. makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, practical. Now, do you also have video conferencing so you can see each other? Love our video conferencing technology, man. The IT guys are
2: gonna be so happy with me I'm like an ad for our new <laughs> tools. Um, and I, not, I promise I'm not being paid in any way, but our our product is the Cisco Telepresence tool. Um, the only downside for me is I now have to put on lipstick before our <laughs> conference call, <laughs> which i 've laughed about, but it 's a terrific tool and and candidly you know, it 's a tough time you know we 're really trying to cost uh cost out things like um Traveling. You know, travel and, yeah. and so this has helped tremendously we 've really we we beta tested it last year we i was our office luckily was one of the first, so it saved me a lot of travel time between Washington and Connecticut. And I'm using it all the time now, and I just love it. I also find it's particularly strong for established teams who know each other, because once you know each other, you can read each other's signals even across is you know terrific right. technology, um, which you couldn't see on the phone. We also
0: laugh that it forces your colleagues to actually be paying attention and not be
2: checking their email. <laughs> I'm guilty well, of that as well.
0: Well, you so. know, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I had a guy on uh, my radio show just recently, and we were talking about how you lose so much in email and even in twitter and all those things because you you don't you don't hear voice uh, quality you don't hear the tone you don't see the body language there is so much that can be misinterpreted whereas if you're having the video conferencing you're actually getting that you're you're seeing it uh, in real time you're getting to see someone like you said if you have engineers that are in ohio and other engineers in India, maybe they meet once, but then they can—they don't have to do that traveling back and forth. They can talk. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot lost in all the emails, you know?
2: I completely agree. And I'll tell you again, it's my dad and my husband who both said to me, you are way too wedded to your email. You've got to get up, walk down the hall. Sit in somebody's office. You know, my my dad again, very old school in a good way. You know, really wants to shake people's hands and see their eyes and you know, see this person I want to work with, I want to trust. And uh, you know, those values get lost, and they're they're important today. Um, and my yeah, because I think can, that's
0: why, like on the internet, when you think of all these kids or people who who just use the internet all the time, they can be deceived because anybody can put words down that look good, but they have maybe deceptive ideas, or maybe they're fraudulent, or maybe they're sinister. Do you know because what I mean? I that- more.
2: And as a mom, I'm obviously very concerned, and, and we, in fact, just uh, built our house, and we built a centralized uh, uh, study room, basically, as a, in the main area where all the computers for the kids are going to be. We're not going to have kids on their computer in their room where we can't see what they're doing, yeah. It sounds a little uh, paranoid, I guess, but um, I think you're right. kids safely online is, is just a huge... Uh, huge issue and um and I don't mean to sound like I'm down. I, I am I'm as I said a huge early adopter and I am wedded to my Blackberry and my iPhone, my cell phone and my laptop. But there is there is something to be said for the human touch as well.
0: Yep, yep. And I love the idea of having that video conferencing. So what are the top risks facing the business enterprise right now in the data world?
2: That's a, a terrific question. I especially in this very evolving time where we're seeing a lot of turnover at different companies. you know, Companies facing um, uh, layoffs should, I think, be concerned about their data assets as they leave, just as they're concerned about the health and well-being of their employees who leave and stay. Um, and it's something, I think, that we have not mis- maybe focused on um, in those experiences in the past. It's something we certainly, I think, did actually very well at DoubleClick. When, I got to see the highs and the lows of, of uh, the dot-com world. And um, there needs to be rigor around shutting people's access down and shutting people's uh, ability to access systems down and making sure that the intellectual property of the company stays with the company uh, as people are leaving. Um, a very difficult issue, very sensitive issue, but one that can be handled, I think, sensitively as well. Uh, if uh, good protocols are in place. And, and uh, we've seen some strengthening around that as people realize uh, it is very easy to kind of walk out the door with large data sets or or other um, assets of the company. It's not just files and papers and boxes anymore. It's, you know, thumb drives and, and that sort of thing. So, iPhones. <laughs> yeah, iPhone, exactly. <laughs> Even the assets themselves. If you talk to our security leader, uh, he'll tell you he's, you know, pretty ticked off when <laughs> we don't put our finger on every uh you know, BlackBerry and laptop—the minute uh, they walk out the door—and so, and what
0: they can put on that too.
2: That's exact. To me, that's the more important thing:
0: is the data. Right. But you know, there's also a value to the, the the thing itself. So exactly, exactly. So, what are the top privacy risks for individuals? Because we've been talking about corporations.
2: I think it's all the good and all the bad of the things we discussed on the internet. I think people um, should embrace the social technologies, and and and. You know, people will laugh at the, the fur with which I have embraced my Facebook life. <laughs> but I think we are also perhaps trusting uh, that these good and responsible companies will never be hacked or breached or that the people we interact with on these, uh, these portals all have our best interests in mind, right? So it was actually a colleague of mine from Homeland who emailed me and said, Nula, take your birth date off your profile, yeah, and I said, John, I have only friends, only friends. <laughs> and he said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. We know what your birthday is. Just month and year, month and date would be fine. You don't need the year. Right,
0: right. He said, that's a key indicator for identity theft. Well, you should know that, you know. <laughs> I know. See, people, you know, you get when you are a trustworthy person, you are trusting, and that's what's unfortunate because I experience hearing from victims of identity theft all over the place. So they're usually very honest, trusting people who become victims and it isn't a lot of it's beyond their control, but yes, if they often put out information that is usable by bad guys. So that that happens. We're speaking with Nula O'Connor Kelly who is Senior Counsel, Information, Governance, and Privacy for General Electric. She has a wonderful background from being in the government sector to private industry, and we're speaking with her all the way from the East Coast. And now, Nula, tell us about the privacy profession. You know, being coming in as the new president in January of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, this is a new profession anyway, isn't it? I suppose it is, although it feels old to me, and I
2: I shouldn't uh, mock the person in my life who said, you know, how long are you going to ride this privacy thing? Because I'm not sure it's really going to last. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) There was someone very near and dear to my heart um, who at the time was probably right. It was very early in its infancy, and it's only been, it'll be 10 years next year that the IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, has been in existence. And what a whirlwind it's been it's gone from a handful of people to i think we're over 6,000 members now i don't see any uh, sign of that dramatic increase abating if if anything i think it's only going to grow um i think it's a it's just an obvious reflection of the importance of data and information in the information age and that again it's asset of, of of these companies but it's also a currency for for companies and individuals, and um, and the risks and the opportunities are so great, so great. I, I've always liked the analogy that uh, privacy is to the information age, what the environmental impact issues were to the industrial age, and you know we're better than GE to, to to experience that. A great old line industrial company, um, really focusing on information practices and policies and. And uh, I think that's true of many, many companies, large and small, as they realize their impact in the in the waters, whether it's their employees' data or their customers or business partners. You've got to have someone in the fold who understands your operations as well as the larger policy and legal frameworks in which you operate. And I see many companies that, you know, operate globally who don't necessarily even realize they have got data flows. So I think we've got Tremendous growth as, a, as an association, as people realize uh, their data impact, and I think more and more as we partner with our allies in the technology field, in the information security field, um, or in, in other other walks of life who share these same kind of concerns and uh, and impacts, legal compliance, marketing. You know, there are many many allies, and I, I can really see uh, growth, only growth, hopefully for the IAPP. But that you know, there's a terrific uh, leadership team there with Trevor Hughes and his entire entire staff and team um, have just grown that organization so professionally and so so well. And now with the uh, the number of accreditation models we have for kind of a general. Oh my IT, goodness, it's
0: growing. I know. Right, right. Um, internationally,
2: as well as in terms of subject matter and in the uh, in the IT space, in the government space. So I think. Uh, it's a terrific credential. Also, I really have encouraged folks on my team to pursue it, and in a challenging economy, it is not a bad thing to have additional credentials. <laughs> exactly. Candidly, um, but it's a terrific uh, learning opportunity as well. And the the conferences have been just just powerhouse, uh, you know, speakers and and keynotes and and uh, and really fun as well. So I'm I'm excited. I think uh, 2010 again is the 10th anniversary. So we'll have some, some exciting events there. And uh, and Trevor, again, has taken it uh, really to the streets in Europe and, and Australia, New Zealand, Canada. So really a lot of growth ahead.
0: It's very eclectic, and it's very worldly right now, too. I remember the very first – I went to the very first program. In fact, I, I presented 10 years ago, and there were, just, there were a few hundred people there. Maybe we had a few hundred members, and not many of us were even CIPPs. I don't even think they had it yet but uh... yeah it's fascinating so we're sitting here on the campus of the university of california here in irvine what advice would you have for students who are interested in becoming a privacy professional why should they do it and what do you think will happen
2: that is um, a terrific opportunity for anyone going into to business or into advocacy or into law again these are real world issues that are going to affect us exponentially more every day week month year um, as our lives become more and more online, essentially. You know, more and more of our appliances, our daily, our daily interaction with the world is funneled through uh, technology objects. And each of those, or rather on each of those, we are leaving a data trail of footprints um, about ourselves and our preferences and our interests. I mean, I, I love the article that was written about, you know, the smart refrigerator. I can't tell you that we're working on that or not because I don't actually know. But the idea that your refrigerator would report back to the grocery <laughs> store, you know, it's time to <laughs> buy milk. First of all, I think it's, it's a fabulous idea.
0: <laughs> and, and you know what? I, I forget I forget I have something in there, and it probably would tell me you don't need that, Mari. You don't have to buy that. You already have pickles. <laughs>
2: Wouldn't that be a blessing? I yes. do that all the time. <sighs> I am the biggest defender of that. Or it's you know time to get rid of that thing, that old cheese. That's in it. <laughs> it's in his bag that, that you forgot was in there, you right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But again, that you know that's fraught with personal choice and health and insurance and other implications. So you know all these again well intentioned and benign and, and really positive um, efficiency uh, advancements are fraught with personal privacy choices and dilemmas. And so whatever kind of walk of of uh, of life you might enter, whether it's again, you know, corporate or the law or or advocacy, you know, this is just going to be, I think, a continuingly hot uh, policy area in the coming years. So, and, and very much fueled by technology, but I think we also get maybe bamboozled by the technology and forget that there are basic principles again of fairness, of of, of privacy. Um, built into, you know, U.S. legal frameworks. We're often binged for, you know, internationally for not having an omnibus federal privacy law. And to be candid, we should talk about this, I'm sure, a little bit later, but I I, kind of get that and and I kind of get why it might be easier on us if we did. Um, I do not... Except that the United States is not strong in privacy because we have, I think, very much embedded in our culture the sense of individual self-determination and freedom, and so I I, I will not stomach people telling me that you know, we we don't do a good job on privacy. We've got the Federal Trade Commission and attorneys general and and state constitutional protections in California, for example. You have uh, some of the strongest, and
0: you're terrific privacy office yeah we have an office of privacy protection i think it's just wisconsin and us right i mean we were the first office is there anything is there any other state besides wisconsin that has actually built in an office of privacy protection you know that's a good
2: question i think there may be privacy officers at a number of states i think pennsylvania maybe and a couple of others but not the um consumer protection office structure that you have, and I know Joan very well, and she's terrific. Um,
0: They've actually taken it out of the Office of Consumer Affairs, and now it's mm-hmm. there's a combined with the IT department, so it's actually at a higher level, which is great.
2: I'm, I'm thrilled. I saw that in the news, and I was wondering what the impact was. Yeah. And that reflects sort of what we've done at, at you know at GE and other companies are really thinking about the melding of privacy and security because it's all part of the data life cycle.
0: Yes. Yeah, and, and you really, like they say, you you can have security without privacy, but you can't have privacy without security. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds like it to me when I think you really need to be looking at both issues and, and collaborate together.
2: Absolutely. I think that's been a key to um, our early success on information governance is that we've forced the dialogue at the company to, um, people in legal and people in IT who may never have met before <laughs> right. um, are now sitting in rooms and saying, well, you know, we could do it this way, we could do it this way, here's a challenge, you know, here's, here are the new policies that affect um, uh, the, the IT systems, or here's an IT solution to your your policy challenge. So right. I've just seen great collaboration, and I'm really heartened by that. And uh, it's
0: So fun. you're the mediator, huh, for everybody?
2: I've <laughs> often thought of myself as a translator. <laughs> I really like language. I think I you know, I'm a frustrated uh, well an English major from Princeton, right?
0: Yes. So yes, exactly. I love
2: helping people understand each other better and I get to learn in the process. So Right.
0: And and you coming from your masters in education, which I have to laugh, I have one from Hofstra in New York. So I, I can really relate to that. But you are you're wearing a lot of hats and you have to mediate between marketing and IT and all the different areas so that the privacy issues get heard because often that doesn't happen in a lot of corporations, as you know. So what are the key attributes? We're going to get back to maybe these students who are listening in here. What are the key attributes that you think are necessary to be a a chief privacy officer?
2: Well, I, I love the advice that, you know, find something you love doing and you'll end up being good at it and being a success, right? So passion for the issue. I think you can't fake that. You know, I think people find sometimes funny what i get really excited about you know but oh look at this new it system and what it's going to do and you know um
0: but but that's infectious though isn't it nula you know you do that and everybody around you gets excited i i completely agree i think that is the secret to my success (laughs) i I do yeah because you're you're just filled with excitement and passion it's great i love it yeah you've got to have passion for the subject and then I think maybe a little bit of courage. I've I've
2: often thought there was an ombuds-like quality to certainly the privacy officer position in the government where you sometimes needed to stand firm and say, gosh, that's just not a good idea, you know, or – and I try never to say completely no, but say no but. No, that's not terrific, but this might be a different way to do it, or, you know, let's consider these other challenges and and ways and be a real – help made and a partner to the business leaders, the people who are trying to get their jobs done. Um, And again, you're right, it's part education, it's part training, it's part advocate, Uh, it's a little bit of everything. But I think, again, a core passion for the subject, um, a respect for the individual at all times. You've got to think about what does the end user think about this, whether it's the citizen, the customer, the end user of a technology solution. And just thinking that you don't like something or you do like something isn't enough. You kind of got to think, I tried to explain it uh, the other day as uh, the, fragile, the eggshell plaintiff. Remember? The right, right, sentence? right. You've got to think about the person who's the most sensitive on this issue. And usually it's you, you know, usually it's me in the room, but not always. Um, and think, you know, have we explained this adequately enough? Are the, are the means appropriate to the ends here? And uh, I think a love of technology and a love of the law certainly helps. I have never felt that you needed to absolutely be a lawyer or absolutely be a technologist. Uh, but a, a profound respect for both probably is, is, is very helpful.
0: We're speaking with Nula O'Connor Kelly, who is the Senior Consul, Information Governance and Privacy for General Electric, and she comes with a wonderful background from working as the Privacy Officer for the Department of Commerce, the Department of of Homeland Security, and prior to that, from DoubleClick. She's terrific, and she's here to talk to us about privacy. What are some of the emerging technology privacy issues that, that we really haven't addressed yet? There's there's just a ton of them.
2: Well, we've talked a little bit about the, the Facebooks and the MySpaces, and they have social implications as well as family and and workplace and productivity impacts. But, you know, there are things I don't even know how to use yet, honestly, um, not quite up to speed on Twitter and some of the other um, micro blogging opportunities. And I, I try not to take the stance that I think many lawyers of perhaps of my age uh, take, which is, uh, why would I need to do that? You know, I have email. I have fax machines. I have, you know, I don't need these new things. Um, I think that we have to respect that there are different ways to communicate with our colleagues and customers and, and friends. And we just need to make sensible policies around them. Um, I I, I think the idea that the law covers many of these constructs of fairness and of privacy already, but we have new applications of the law to new technologies. You know, something we're looking at right now is um, instant messaging, which, of course, has been around for for decades. But um, we see a real explosion of the use of instant messaging in the ordinary work discourse instead of the telephone, really. Um, it's easier to document what you've said and wait for a response and you know, than playing telephone tag with messages and that kind of thing. Um, but that has not only uh, privacy and data transfer implications, it also has e-discovery implications and uh, kind of uh, business uh, business privacy, business intellectual property issues associated with it. So how do we set kind of good uh, tone and values for our employees around what it's okay to do and not to do um, in these various technologies. I think we've set very, very pragmatic and practical and I think forward-looking policy in, you know, the reasonable use kind of uh, standard that we we do expect people will get the occasional personal email, just like you get a personal phone call saying, you know, honey, pick up that gallon of milk on the way home. You know, this is the way our lives work. They're far more um, fluid than the nine-to-five of old, right? We've got people working on the weekends and in the evenings and at home and on vacation, but they also are going to take, you know, 10 minutes to address the nanny's issue today or the, you know, the, right, the, right. Oh, the parent-teacher conference or whatever. So I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think... Responsible employees are going to get their job done if it's standing on their head at midnight in their pajamas, which is often (laughs) not standing on my head but in my pajamas. um, You know, I I love my job and I'm going to get the job done. Um, But we have to understand that there's a blending of the personal and the professional in a way that I think makes some people very uncomfortable. And so we have to set good policy and reasonable policy around these technologies that allow our employees to feel comfortable and safe in their communications, but also protects the assets of the company.
0: So Nula, how do you develop that kind of policy? I mean it is so all encompassing and and how do you help the employees to know that policy and enforce it?
2: Great, great questions because it is probably I think the number one part of my job is 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 helping develop good policies and then communicating them. Um, we have a what I would call kind of the seminal privacy and, and data security policy at the company for the end user. Now, there are lots of technology policies that probably I don't even understand, but the one that is most forward-facing to our employees would be the acceptable use of GE information resources. It's the AUGUR or the info use policy. And what we find is we actually have to
0: update that a heck of a lot. Because they're
2: changing. And every I time just,
0: there's a new technology or there's a new thing like Twitter or something like that, it's it's gotta be daily. You you do have to write policies in a very forward looking but also
2: not generic but, but elastic way that allow it to cover um the data as well as the, the transmission mode. So, but even with that, we last updated it two years ago, and we found that it's woefully inadequate in the in the social networking department. So, that's one of our projects. Um, But then communicating it I think has actually been a lot of fun. Our tech guys have come up with some great suggestions and solutions around embedding the actual policy or or relevant provisions in um, transition pages to various websites or in different environments online. Uh, One one of my colleagues joked because one of our graphics has a picture of an end user Woman with dark hair, and she said, "Did you put your own picture on that jump page?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "No, no, that woman's much younger and better looking than I am." But, um, but just you can because the online space is so user friendly. You can embed little reminder notes or hyperlinks to the policy, or we even do online training. You know, um, we're trying to embed that annually for all, certainly for all new employees, and then. Uh, refresher courses for existing employees. So, Especially
0: when you're updating, the existing employees are, are figuring that everything is based on the, the policy that they read last year. So they have to know the new stuff too.
2: And the, I, I also have to find again that you have to set aside your experience of the workplace and think in terms of your youngest and your oldest, your longest serving, your brand newest employee, people in all different countries, different walks of life and different job descriptions, And you can't write policies just for any one of those. So that to me is a challenge, is is expressing it across platforms and across uh, workspaces. Not everybody even at at the company has a computer, right? There are people who work in spaces where they don't have computers or they have shared computers. We have to think about the privacy implications of, of, of all of that and of, you know, the paper world. We still have paper. It's the bane of my existence, but, <laughs> 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 but uh, we have to think about – we've been talking about getting rid of paper for how many decades now, right? right? And I'm not sure we ever will completely, but I think we are in better shape in terms of storage and and archiving. It's certainly cheaper online. It's certainly more accessible online. Um, and it certainly brings up some challenges, in the, again, in the e-discovery or – or, or archive space
0: and you have policies you have people who work like you said in India and all over the world for your company how do you reconcile the policies of those laws in those countries versus the laws in our country
2: well practically speaking what ends up happening is you end up going to the highest level of protection right and so that is what um, why I would call our binding corporate rules really an EU style of data protection because that would be the most proscribed, prescriptive, uh, se- uh, specific level. Of, of data protection on a data element by data element basis and because the guidance for binding corporate rules came out of the European Union so and, and are for the most part more restrictive about data transfer data processing data usage than other regions of the world what ends up happening is that all of your employees because of the ease of just applying one policy that applies to a system as opposed to multiple um would will get that level of protection
0: well we don't have a lot of time left I can't believe this we it is just flu I want to thank you so much for joining us nula you are terrific and i gotta tell you ge is awfully lucky to have you and we're lucky to have you as our incoming president for the international association of privacy professionals, so we're going to be looking for great stuff from you. i got to tell you that. got a big job ahead. Well, I'm so grateful to be here, and I think there are great days ahead for the whole profession.
2: So let's get back together and have this conversation soon. And
0: we'll have you next year to tell us all the good things that are happening with your company and, and with the IAPP. Thank you so much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m., at 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And also visit our website, KUCI.org slash where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what you want to know about in privacy in the information age. Thank you. Good night.
2: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.
0: Hey, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we are very happy today to introduce you to Reserve Sergeant Alan Metz, Who has been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for 10 years as a reserve officer, and he's with the Professional Standards Reserve Unit. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Well, Alan, what is the Professional Standards Unit?
3: It's comparable in most companies to the uh, HR department or the uh, personnel department, but it involves a little bit more.
0: So, what do you do?
3: I'm the reserve recruiting sergeant. So I'm in charge of recruiting reserves and PSRs for the Sheriff's Department.
0: And so what exactly does the Professional Standards Unit do with regard to this HR-type issues?
3: We do recruiting at colleges and other, like the Orange County Fair and other fairs where we can uh, attract people and welcome them to information about the Reserve Deputy Program, also the PSR, or Professional Service Responder Program.
0: Well, next week we're going to learn more about exactly what you have to do to get into the Sheriff Reserve Program, and we thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you just give us that website?
3: The website for all information on the Sheriff's Department is www.ocsd.org.
0: Well, thank you so much, Reserve Sergeant Alan Metz.